Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned to four o'clock and you're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm here till six this evening. Today, Kathy Kelly's recent visit to Afghanistan. Journalist, researcher and also Nick McLellan speaking about climate change issues, the Pacific and West Papua. Dr Tim Anderson will be talking about his recent visit to Syria, his new book, Axis of Resistance, hopefully Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela and Australia's role in the Middle East wars. And a recent rally in London supporting Julian Assange, featuring John Pilger, Julian's brother and Roger Waters. But first, let's have Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when, forgive me if I don't make it without throwing up, as I've been suffering acute nausea since hearing big supremos scuttle them more less than subsequious bowing and scraping speech the other day as he lived dangerously given the US of the UN of the US of the world phobia we reported last week, this concern that the US of Capitalist Party, which controls every aspect of US of life, is having too much influence on true blue Aussie may pose a security and economic threat. Yet in the midst of this US of phobic atmosphere, scuttle them scuttled off to be fated by the senior members of the Capitalist Party, including the big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, and their private conversations will certainly be soaring to the heights of political philosophy as they devoured a few hot dogs in the Rose Garden, top of the range hot dogs, mind you, and scuttle them delivered that nausea-invoking speech, perhaps because advisers advise scuttle them not to discuss with Donald issues that might upset him, which covers just about everything, limiting their limited conversation even more. But we discovered, following the sickening speech as they shook hands 103 times for the cameras, just how warm and close, close, close is our relationship. And it will stay that way as long as you keep obeying our orders, best orders ever, ever. Certainly, Donald. In fact, our jumping when you order us to jump expresses our independence in taking decisions based on your ordering us to jump, Scuttle then declared True Blue Aussie's independence. It remains to be seen whether this diplomatic contact with senior members of the US of Capitalist Party will ease the concern expressed in the US of phobia attacks, but we can only hope. Scuttle them may have seen this risky manoeuvre in light of that phobia as preferable to being in true blue Aussie as these mere school children, children, led thousands onto the streets of true blue Aussie to demand, demand how dare they action on climate change when as many as point naught 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 one percent of relevant scientists tell us the proof of anthropological climate change is far from confirmed. The point naught 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 
1% backed up by the entire fossil fuel industry, the entire caring business class party, the entire hayseed and sheepshit party, Lord Rupert of Wapping and his entire team of acolytes, and since the last election, the Socialist Party, with its Senate Supremo Penny left wing, declaring coal will remain our major source of energy for as far as we can envisage the Earth surviving this non-existent threat. How dare mere children tell adults, mature, mature people like scuttle them and the great corporate fossils what's good for us. It scuttled them and the great corporate fossils role to tell these children what's good for them. And we all agree what's good for these children is being in their classrooms, learning what really matters in this society, and not preventing people going about their lawful business. And worse, that all these pliable adults, from evil unions to, to well across the social spectrum, pliable adults followed these children, let mere children lead them in scenes reminiscent of the Pied Piper in reverse, piping them into the rising tide. Imagine Donald and Scuttledem condemning this puerile, immature disruption, which is probably a tautology, puerile, immature disruption, not just here, but all over the world. Wisely saging children must know their place, and their place is certainly not on the streets disrupting the economy. What right have they to worry about the world they'll inherit from the fossils? They can start worrying when they're mature like Donald and Scuttledem, all leading to a UN of the US of the UN of the World Climate Summit north of Donald and Scuttledem in New York, which neither will have the time nor the inclination to attend. And why should they? Why waste time discussing something so insignificant, threatening the profitability of the great resource giants over so unproven a theory? And Donald and Scuttledem were much more productive eating their hot dogs in the Rose Garden after having to delay the lunch for a small period while staff elevated the tables and chairs to prevent them floating away in the waves washing up the avenue. Donald and Scuttledem are at the UNR this week not to waste time on so-called climate change, but to discuss ways of making the members of the US of Capitalist Party even richer, which will make the world richer, trickle down or up or across or over whatever, exemplified after they got their orders from one of the US of Capitalist Party members, Anthony Yora Pratt, a true blue Aussie member of the US of Party. Doesn't it make us proud true blue Aussies to know how we're appreciated, to open a cardboard factory, part of the empire of Anthony, True Blue Aussie's richest person, who achieved his hard-earned, well-deserved, filthy rich, obscene wealth, thanks to his father, the corporate crook Big Dick, jumping into the cot with his mum one night. See, Donald jumped when Anthony ordered, get here, and then scuttled them jump when Donald ordered, Anthony said, get here, great, great. Best get here ever, ever. And Donald modestly told the Ohio masses why waste a campaign opportunity. It was all down to his policies, including slashing Anthony's taxes. And it all shows everyone is equal. There's no favoritism. No one has more influence than anyone else. The cardboard man or the homeless woman, all equal. Because the tax slashing that benefited Anthony will now trickle down to her little gutter. A mix with a little bit of the detritus that trickles down to little gutters. 
Still on the Donald and Scuttledame show, the government has warned uh, Trudeau, was his aluminium producers, to cut back their exports to the US of, quote, to prevent Donald imposing trade restrictions on Trudeau, was he? So unless we're getting this wrong, we impose the restrictions Donald may impose in order to prevent him imposing them. But doesn't he love us? Okay, he took time off from telling Scuttlebem, truly was he was his best friend, to fate the Indian big supremo, also his best friend, but doesn't he love us? On capitalist party business, this evil Iran attack on liberty, freedom and democracy love and Saudi oil structures, okay, evil Iran denies doing it, but it, it would, wouldn't it? And the US of knows it did it. Well, it is highly likely the US of does know who did it. Notice when world oil prices go up, that is reflected at the petrol pump a lot quicker than when world prices go down. I'm sure there's a simple explanation. The capitalist party could explain it to us. On the big business of privatised health, one of the private health mobs is running this ad showing staff, happy, happy staff, lovingly treating patients and such happy, happy patients with the slogan, Uncommon Care. And I thought for once there is truth in advertising because if they do provide the sort of care the ad claims they provide, it would be uncommon care, as a number of inquiries have and are proving. On Truth In, in the Truth Stakes, new Hermos Grace's Majesty's home country, Big Supremo Boris Don't Join Son, is throwing down a challenge to Donald. Big contender this week at a hospital photo op when a patient's husband attacked him for grandstanding while the health system is running down. He wasn't grandstanding, Boris objected. There's no press here, he pointed out, while staring at the telecamera filming the whole encounter. On Truth and Proof, the Feminist Solidarity Award of the Week are Lay Down Mazaire, one notion star that appalling Hoonsun informing us women lie about domestic violence. Like the US of, she doesn't need proof. She said it, so it's the truth. Still, that appalling and great lover of the dear baby Jesus, Kevin Ann Screws, the workers, will co-chair another inquiry into all this, indicating the recent recommendations of the previous inquiry didn't go far enough for that appalling and Kevin and the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit teams. In the week that was sport... Last night, maybe commercial telly reporter Tony Jones was overcome by all the exciting fashion labels around him as he stood on the red carpet, which is the real event on Brownlow night, the medal a secondary consideration. Tony was so excited discussing what the women were wearing, he got his words very mixed up. They never fail to disappoint, he blurted. I'm sure the women would have been thrilled with that. That makes that uh, make-believe artificial just-for-marketing Greater Western Sydney team must have the most popular player in the competition because whenever the club is mentioned, people immediately scream, that Toby Green, he's so popular. I'm sure he'll get a warm reception whenever he, t he goes near the ball on Saturday. As an occupational health and safety issue, we recommend Richmond hand out eye protection gear to its players. Finally, we remain deeply impressed with the Socialist Party's brilliant tactic as Her Most Gracious Majesty's official opposition by agreeing with everything the government does. Hasn't that got the government rattled?
The tactic is also exposing the dangerous left-wing socialist commie policies of that out-of-control supremo and would-be big supremo, little Billy Shorten ambition at the last election. Thus, we were all encouraged by the new socialist supremo Anthony Albing Uzi's speech to a gathering of corporate high flyers, a business profits council seminar this week, telling that he never agreed with little Billy's business-bashing rhetoric attacking the top end of town. The socialists want to work with big business. Anthony gave us all hope. And he, just remind me, is from the left. Good afternoon. And if you'd like to hear some more of Mr Kevin Healy, it's um, a date here at nine o'clock with a cup of tea for City Limits with Kevin Healy and friends. Two weeks ago, President Trump announced he had cancelled secret peace talks with the Taliban leaders after an attack on Kabul killed 12, including an American soldier, talks that had been ongoing for 10 months. The Taliban responded by criticising Trump and said that US forces had been pounding Afghanistan with attacks at the same time. Kathy Kelly a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, was in Kabul at that time. Kathy, we hear of street bombings, multiple deaths, curfews, no-go areas, people fearful of going out into the streets. Can you paint a picture of Kabul as you see it? Well, thank you, Jan. I was just there in Kabul, and in the Kabul that I know, there is high anxiety now. And it was interesting to me that young Hazara students, university students, knew the names of Pashto youngsters who'd been killed in night raids by United States Special Operations Forces uh, in one province away. So it's not lost on the young people that it's not only the Taliban attacking them, but multiple warlords, including the Afghan National Defense Forces being trained by the CIA and there's there's a sense of um, dread, and yet, you know, almost a gallows humor. What what can you do about it? I, I certainly myself expected that after uh, President Trump had said no more talks following what was to be the tenth round of talks with Salman Khalilzad, that the Taliban would hit hard like the next day because that was the day when the Hazara were having a particular commemoration of their um, very somber religious fest, and uh, not fest, but religious gathering. And there was nothing. It was a very quiet day. Uh, I felt very sad to learn about farmers, pine nut farmers, 30 of whom were killed by a United States drone attack in the Nangarhar province of Afghanistan, because it's so hard for people to find employment and then for agricultural people to try to stay out of the opium production. And here were these pine nut farmers, you know, so innocent of any uh, harm to anyone, and, and they were killed. So, you know, these kinds of stories pile up, and, uh, you know, I think people were beginning to build up some hope that at least there might be a ceasefire. Uh, and yet uh, the idea that uh, the United States is ever going to really do anything to change Taliban practices and policy, I think has been given up on a long time ago by many people in Afghanistan because they could see that while the U.S. was 
you know, surging the troop levels and pouring money into Afghanistan for various ministries and groups, the Taliban just consistently gained more and more power and the infrastructure crumbled more and more and the attacks continued apace and the corruption went sky high. Who do you believe the Taliban are in 2019? They're a different grouping to, say, 20 years ago? It's interesting. Um, There is a group of Taliban who have been living in Doha and they're not experiencing the same risks as people living in you know mountain provinces or in Kabul in Afghanistan. They're living quite well. And they are sometimes called the Quetta Shura. And so they're the ones who've been represented at the negotiating table. Meanwhile, there are lots of different Taliban groupings. There are those who are war-weary fighters, some of them have said, we don't care who's in charge, we don't want to fight anymore, we want to settle down, we want to be with our families. But then there are Taliban leaders within Afghanistan who say, no, we've built up so much leverage, the more we you know, engage in killings, the more leverage we get at the negotiating table. And so there seems to be um, a difference in the different, I'm sorry, a difference in various Taliban groupings. And then there are groupings that aren't Taliban at all, but who have many weapons and I think should also be considered groups that are led by warlords. But a peace talks that doesn't include the government of the country. Mm. Well, that certainly is odd. You know, um, Zalmay Khalilzad is a United States citizen. Ashraf Ghani is an Afghan citizen. <laughs> but it was Zalmay Khalilzad who was doing the negotiating. Ashraf Ghani was kept out of it. And I think, if anything, Trump helped him out because he wanted the elections to happen soon, thinking that if the elections happened very soon, nobody else had a chance to campaign and he could take another term. And because um, the negotiations were called off, it looks like the elections will happen, whereas if there had been a, a, a deal reached and that deal didn't even include Ashraf Ghani, the advice to Ghani was don't even try to run for election right now. You'll have to wait. So elections are always a very dangerous time. You know, people going to election booths are risking their lives, really. So Ashraf Ghani, I think, has made his peace with other warlords, very vicious, very dangerous people representing rival groups. And when I say he's made his peace with them, he's tried to incorporate them into a government so that he'd have some backup in terms of dealing with the Taliban. But, you know, the majority of people living in Afghanistan are women and children, and they aren't represented by anyone, as best I can see. You say that because so many men have died? Yes, their concerns are laid aside. Uh, There's not an adequate education for the young people, for the children. There's not adequate health care. There's so many widows who are are desperate and end up depending on their children to bring in an income. The children then become potential victims for human trafficking. You know, those concerns seem to be uh, shunted off to the side by many, many groups. I still hold out some hope for the People's Peace Movement, the men who've been walking across the country. And then I, I never cease admiring deeply the Afghan Peace Volunteers. Let's talk about the volunteers, the Border Free Centre. Can you describe the centre, how it became into being, where it is in 
Kabul because Kabul is a very closed mm. city now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a very closed city. The roads are quite dangerous no matter what. So um, most of the youngsters now come from Kabul, and uh, it's sometimes questionable whether or not they can come to the center because of roads within Kabul being dangerous or because the families can't afford to um, pay for their bus fare. Uh, this is not a wealthy or well-endowed group. But they're a very earnest, um, dedicated group. They've grown to understand permaculture, and they've got a beautiful permaculture garden right in the middle of their center in a working-class area of Kabul. And they've understood solar power. So even though, I mean, the electrical situation is terrible, I mean, uh, always, and particularly during the months with the most harsh weather, but they've got solar-powered batteries powering their center, and they've now um, hooked up 14 families to use solar power, and they hope to get 16 more families hooked up that way this year. And they're also going to be working soon on making coats for each of the children at the street kids' school. And they just held a conference. This is very impressive. They had one representative from every province in Afghanistan together for a four-day conference to overcome differences between people and understand better how they can together tackle the problems, the greatest problems they really face, problems that have to do with environment and with feeding people and income inequalities and weapons and getting past the wars. And how do they propose to be able to do that? Well, they don't like it that you know people can't find livelihoods and they know that many of the fellow students in their classes, if they prepare to be a teacher, will get 7,000 Afghanis a month, less than $150. But if they sign up to join some militia group, they can get 10,000 Afghanis a month. That's the currency. And that would be closer to $200. And that's not enough to feed a family. But, uh, you know, they, they want to have other ways to move forward. They don't want the country to be so militarized. But right now, um, many, many people out of desperation go for military training, receive guns. Sometimes, you know, some of the soldiers have been known to even just shoot the bullets up in the air and then go collect the casings and take them to the scrap metal dealer and uh, feed their families by trading spent bullets in for scrap metal. Usually there's only the young people there at the centre, but you, when you were there recently, there were parents. Yes, I was so impressed, yeah. You know, um, the teachers at the street kids' school want the parents to take an interest in how the children are doing. And it, it's not only, you know, are they learning language and math skills, those are important, but also are they becoming part of a caring community. And so... They asked the parents to come over, and much to my amazement, there were more men than women that came. And the women came in burpas, but because it was a very, very hot day, they pushed the veils back, and they clustered in one area. And everybody was, you know, very polite and um, friendly to the um, young teacher who was conducting the meeting. And then Hakim, who is the mentor for the Afghan Peace Volunteers, Asked them, it must have been a kind of difficult question. Raise your hand, he said, if you are able to pay for your needs every month. And some people raised their hands, not many. And then he said, raise your hands, please, if you can't make ends meet. And more people raised their hands saying they couldn't. 
And so he said, now could you please let us know if there's somebody in your family, maybe an older brother, who could come for training on how to repair cell phones. And so people, you know, thought about that, and many then signed on to that list, and this will start a training. And this is what I admire about the practicality of my young friends. They think about what would be, you know, the most direct and plausible way to meet the most pressing needs of some of the neediest people in their area. So I'm, I'm glad to see that they're going to start this, and they're also working on, uh, well, continuing to try to get a shoemaking collaborative off the ground and also a tailoring collaborative, uh, cooperative, really. It's hard because, you know, the idea of a cooperative is kind of new in the economy in Afghanistan, but I think these are very important ideas to develop. Are they able to sell the produce from the permaculture garden, or is that for mainly for their own use? Uh, so far, they do have, but they wouldn't. There are no refrigerators. There's no electricity. So the food bank consists of donations of beans, rice, and cooking oil. Uh, they do share the produce. They don't sell it. But eventually, they would like to be able to do something more impressive. I was impressed that at the Kabul University Agriculture Department, the young people who've now learned these permaculture skills from Australia's renowned permaculturist Rosemary Morrow are now teaching those skills to people at Kabul University. Can you talk a little about Dr. Hakim? He's a special person, isn't he? He's very unusual. You know, he went over to Afghanistan in 2004. He was in Pakistan and then uh, moved over to Afghanistan in about 2006 to a company Hazaras who had sought refuge in Pakistan and then were able to go back to their provinces in Ghazni and Bamiyan. And he knew that he wanted to stay with the media. And he's been reading Tolstoy. You know, he's so impressed by the last chapter of Tolstoy's book, The Kingdom of God is Within You, um, which talks about how to make the choices that would lead to an authentic life of commitment and so he, um, he's been incredibly committed to trying to help uh, use his skills, and they're considerable, language skills, medical skills, writing skills, education skills, farming skills now, to help people survive. And uh, the children that I've known have trusted him a great deal, and he has um, also now been very interested in methods of education. He's a bit like Albert Schweitzer, who was interested in that question also, a medical doctor who worked in Africa. And so he's trying to start an institute for nonviolence that would become a hub for the projects the youngsters have been developing, but also for a different style of education that he calls relational learning. So uh, he'll be in Ireland at the World Beyond War Conference. I had planned to be there myself, but um, I suffered a broken hip, so I'll have to sit that one out. But uh, I'm glad that he'll be there. Is he from Afghanistan? He, uh, no, no, no. He's from Singapore. Somebody who benefited from a very, very fine education in Singapore. Uh, his name in Singapore would be Wee Tech Young. But um, in Afghanistan, they gave him the name Hakim. And uh, so he's gone by that name. Well, just to say that because he's from Singapore, his features are Asiatic. Uh, he's of the Han Chinese ethnic background and uh, speaks fluent Chinese several other languages 
in China and, and India, Indian languages and Pakistani languages. But um, he fits in pretty well in terms of, like, the visible assessment people would say, oh, that man's Hazara. So otherwise, it's really not very safe for Westerners to spend a long time living in Afghanistan. Did he bring a family with him? No, no. His mother and dad stay in touch with him by social media every week, but he goes back to visit family and friends in Singapore twice a year. And just on that fact that it's not safe for Westerners to be there for long, and you can understand why. Oh, you can certainly understand. I mean, after the last terrible bombing that happened in what's called the Ring of Steel in Kabul, that um, seemed to be aimed particularly at uh, the area where a lot of Western diplomats live, uh, people started to burn some of those houses. They were so angry. They said, we don't want you to live in our neighborhood because we're the ones who get killed. From Afghanistan to Saudi Arabia, we've got the, the drone attack on the oil field, just about automatically mm. blamed on Iran. I just find it hard to believe how these drones were undetected. They apparently travelled 500 miles from Yemeni soil, but no one saw them. Well, that's puzzling, and also that um, the States has sold Saudi Arabia so much equipment that's supposed to be anti-ballistic missiles, anti-cruise missile attacks, and that didn't work. But it's interesting nobody was killed with all of those attacks. The Houthi... It may well be acquiring more sophisticated weaponry all the time, but, you know, I don't think it's fair to decide, well, that came from Iran. There's a plenty that goes out on the black market. I think drone proliferation has certainly now risen in people's understanding as an issue that can't just be, you know, regarded as a weird phrase. Drone proliferation, you know, is very much with us. The Houthis have a menacing set of weapons and you know when Saudi Arabia asks for help in dealing with this I think well couldn't the nations of the world say yeah we'll help you we'll give you some good advice stop bombing Yemen stop destroying the many infrastructure and roads and mosques and homes and schools and uh, farmers fields and fisheries just stop it and then people won't be trying to figure out how they can hit you back and the continuing focus on Iran? Well, again, the same thing. I wish the nations of the world would get more stern with the United States and say, you know, we can't afford your bullying toward Iran and your constant threatening of war with Iran. There are mechanisms for diplomacy and negotiation, and the United States has, you know, ripped those up at will, at whim. Uh, and, and that doesn't help build confidence amongst other groups. Uh, so I, I think we're at a time when you know, the United States has been acting like an outlier, if you will, breaking laws, breaking protocols, erratic, unpredictable, and really quite dangerous. So where will people turn to try to find a more rational, level-headed partner in policies? I'm sure people in China are saying, well, you know, we'll answer that question. And, and yet the Chinese have also got a very formidable uh, intelligence outfit and um, militarist tendency. So, uh, you know, I, I, I look to, you know, some leaders who don't seem to have given in to 
militarism, and I think of Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, in the UK, and, and hope that some small countries will assert themselves. One of the reasons that this conference is being held in Ireland is because uh, the United States has a huge naval base in Shannon Airport in Ireland, and they use that base to send weapons to Saudi Arabia and to the United Arab Emirates, and they ship U.S. soldiers all over. And Ireland is supposed to be a, a neutral country. So if one country would stand up and say, you know, it's, it's just not possible in this world today for us to continue with the threats to climate change and further divisions caused by military and further pollution and consumption caused by consumption of fossil fuels caused by militaries. We, we've got to stop this, and we, we're going to say we can and we will, and we're not going to go along with it. And there are two United States veterans who are there in Ireland taking a walk, a long walk right now, between towns and villages, asserting that because the Irish government took their passports and won't let them go home mm-hmm. after they cross the line at Shannon Airport. Who's organizing the the um, conference? Oh, uh, World, World Beyond War is organizing this particular conference, and they're working closely with Irish people who protest regularly at Shannon. Um, Ed Horgan is, uh, and uh, Barry Sweeney are two of their partners, and they're bringing people from all around the world, and I hope a lot of people from Ireland will go. Uh, people from Ireland could cross the line without risking having their passports confiscated and being unable to travel. You had hoped to be there, I believe, but as you said, you've broken a hip. And the reason why... Yes, I'm afraid... The reason you were on the train rather than on a plane was because... It would have been quite a lot less expensive to fly, but Greta Thunberg has just done such wonderful work educating people and engaging in the school strikes. And so in Chicago, there was a big climate strike on Friday the 20th, and I thought, oh, I can't dare fly on that day. So I booked an Amtrak train ride. And the trains can be kind of wild at times, they... They swerve and jolt, and I was unfortunately uh, not holding on tight when I fell and hit my hip. So that happened. Yeah, well... But I'm certainly glad to stay away from the planes as much as possible. I know we all have to start listening to the young people who are pointing us in a new direction. And I'm sure a broken hip's not going to stop you with your activism. Well, I guess pen and paper won't hurt (laughs) Thank you so much, Kathy. Thank you, Jan. Thank you for calling me. It's always great to be in touch with you. Nothing will stop Kathy Kelly. Imagine that off on a train, Wednesday, broken hip, Thursday, operation, Friday, probably out of hospital. Now she's got six weeks to recover and we can wish her well in her recovery. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just 30 You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online.
online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. I'm speaking now with researcher and journalist Nick McClellan and there was a major climate meeting in New York overnight and our Prime Minister wasn't there. It's really striking to note that Australia was only represented at the United Nations Climate Action Summit by the Foreign Minister and Australia wasn't given a spot on the platform to speak. The UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has been calling on countries to announce more urgent action and urgent commitments to address the obvious failings of current policies on climate change. Um, you know, we're on target, according to the pledges made during the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, towards more than three degrees of warming. And obviously, you know, one degree, maybe 1.5 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels is an area we should be heading towards, but we're well beyond that. And, uh, you know, Australia is in the, the grouping of countries that are, in fact, pushing policies that are leading us in the other direction. So it was striking that the, after Guterres spoke, opening the conference, the first speaker was New Zealand, the second speaker was Fiji, um, other Pacific Island neighbours, Palau, Marshall Islands, Vanuatu, Tonga, all got a, a spot on the platform talking about different aspects of the need to respond to global warming, but Australia was not invited. The Australian media doesn't really register this. You know, there's been very few people made the connection that Scott Morrison was in the United States providing cover for the Trump administration, which has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Both Australia and the United States have refused to pledge extra funds for the Green Climate Fund, the global mechanism uh, for funding developing countries to respond to climate change. Trump was even bold enough to sit in the audience for half an hour listening to Angela Merkel Morrison didn't attend, and that really shows the, the isolation of Australia from neighbouring countries on these really crucial questions. There was another person who wasn't there? Yeah, Akalisi Pohiva, the Prime Minister of Tonga, passed away two weeks ago. His death was really tragic. Pohiva was, you know, a, a long-standing campaigner for human rights, for self-determination, uh, and more recently on climate change in Tonga. He was the founder of the human rights and democracy movement in uh, the kingdom and spent decades campaigning for changes to Tonga's constitution, which finally came about in 2010. You know, Tonga remains a monarchy, um, one of the few remaining monarchies in the, the region. Say Thailand and a couple of other countries in the Asia-Pacific region have, have held on to their monarchy through a, a series of campaigns, uh, eventually getting elected to Parliament in 1987, Akalisi Pohiva, you know, wanted to transform the constitution so that the Prime Minister of the government was not appointed by the King, but would be popularly elected through the Parliament. And that change only came, uh, you know, in, in the last decade. And so Pohiva was, um, when he was elected uh, in 2014-15, as the, the first popularly elected parliamentary uh, elected prime minister. 
made a really important breakthrough. In recent years, he's been very sick with liver cancer, had a lot of treatment in New Zealand, and I was fortunate enough to meet him at the Pacific Islands Forum this year in Tuvalu. He came uh, to Tuvalu with his uh, key aide, uh, Lopeti Senatuli, and uh, was, was really sick and was clearly not well. But in some ways, it was his swan song, um, and he made a series of interventions in both public and private sessions of the, the forum, firstly talking about climate change and the urgency of action, and secondly about West Papua. Tonga has been a, one of the countries um, outside the Melanesian group that has stood up in support of the right to self-determination for the West Papuan people. Pohiva and Senatuli were both uh, members of the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement, so have been working for decades in solidarity with self-determination struggles around the region, in Kanaki, in French Polynesia, in West Papua. And so he spoke very strongly about the need for countries in the region to show solidarity with West Papua and we've seen over the last couple of weeks since the forum that there's been an upsurge of conflict in West Papua as um, young people particularly are rioting in the streets literally against Indonesian rule calling for Medeca, calling for independence and freedom from Indonesian rule. Pohiva's death uh, last week was you know, sort of symbolic of, of the changing generations in the Pacific and young people stepping up to have their say about uh, the, the changes that are, that are coming. What about the speeches, opening speeches to that summit in New York? Like all these summits, there's a lot of rhetoric, and, you know, there wasn't enough put on the table about concrete actions. By next year, by 2020, countries have to upgrade their what are called nationally determined contributions. These are basically the pledges that were made at the Paris Agreement signing in 2015 um, about how much greenhouse gases will be reduced, about how much developed countries will contribute through climate finance and so on. And it's really important to note that there is a a fundamental split between developed industrialised countries and developing countries, particularly small island states, least developed countries. Out of what, 190-odd countries in the UN General Assembly, 136, 136 countries said that their national, you know, nationally pledged contribution to the global climate target is dependent on receiving either climate finance for adaptation, technology transfer to make the shift from diesel electricity, coal-fired power towards renewables and so on, or technical assistance. So, you know, two-thirds of the countries, uh, mainly developing countries, have said, we want to make a commitment to the global challenge of climate change, but we need assistance. We need financial assistance. We need technology transfer. We need technical assistance to make the leap from fossil fuel-generated electricity and transport towards more renewable, sustainable energy systems, transport systems, and so on. And how many years have they been asking for that? Well, since the late 1980s, um, you know, since the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was founded in 1992 at the Rio Summit on Environment and Development. And right from the beginning, the jargon is common but differentiated response. 
there's a common response. All of humanity is affected by climate change, and so we need a common response. But it needs to be differentiated, recognising the capacities of countries. So the obvious point is that small island states like Tuvalu and Kiribati and the Maldives and so on have fairly limited resources to make the leap that we all need to make towards more sustainable systems of economy and to make the adaptation necessary to deal with climate change and indeed to address the loss and damage that's already being caused to economies, to agriculture, to livelihoods and so on. You know, the Americans learnt this a long time ago. They built Las Vegas in the Nevada desert where temperatures are up in the 40s, but people survived there because of air conditioning. But 5% of the world population used 25% of the world's energy. And so there's a recognition that not just the issue about reducing emissions, but also about the transfers that need to be made to assist other countries to make the leap. And, you know, the withdrawal of the United States administration under Donald Trump from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change symbolises the refusal of many countries to deal with this question. And it's the same with Scott Morrison. I interviewed Prime Minister Morrison at the uh, Pacific Islands Forum this year, and one of the issues that was raised by many Pacific countries was the need for the replenishment of the Green Climate Fund. You know, the GCF, the Green Climate Fund, this global mechanism to fund this transfer around adaptation, around mitigation, around renewable energy and so on. And many Pacific countries have already tapped into this global fund. It's quite complex and bureaucratic to get money out of it, but nonetheless, many countries have gained tens of millions of dollars to build seawalls, to go for renewable energy, to fix erosion and other problems in their countries. And Australia, under Tony Abbott, withdrew funding from the fund. Malcolm Turnbull put the money back in. Um, but Scott Morrison's announced that Australia will not give any more funding to the Green Climate Fund, even though we used to be co-chair of the fund. What reasons do they give? Well, they say that they want to give money bilaterally to uh, Pacific countries and not have it go through uh, a global mechanism. But there's a certain playing to the audience on this. When I interviewed the Prime Minister, he said, well, we don't want to send off checks to you know, Geneva or New York or wherever you do for this global body. Now, he knows very well that the headquarters of the Green Climate Fund is in, in South Korea, in Incheon, and he knows that because the man standing next to him, um, Ewan MacDonald, who's head of Australia's Office of the Pacific, used to be the actual co-chair. Australia's former environment diplomat, uh, Howard Bamsey, was secretary-general of running the secretariat of the organisation, executive director there. So Australia's played an important role in getting this body up and running to control its mandate, indeed, in the, in the early days. So when Scott Morrison says, oh, send off checks to Geneva, he's just playing to the Pauline Hanson audience, who say, why are we giving money to foreigners? And that's why Australia didn't get a seat at the climate summit, because internationally people realise that it's not just our ludicrously low targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, it's also our refusal to commit to the climate finance, to the technology transfer, and to the assistance that's needed. And, you know, it's a failure of the Australian media. At the Pacific Islands Forum this year, Scott Morrison announced $500 million for the Pacific. Sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money in one sense. But the problem is that's spread over five years, so it's $100 million a year. Then you divide by 14, because there are 14 Forum Island countries, 
and what sounds like an impressive sum starts to dip down, you know, that's seven or eight million dollars a year. Now, think about how much we spend on infrastructure to make the shift towards renewable energy. Eight million dollars is chicken feed on the global scheme. It sounds like an ordinary lot for working people, but it's, it's not extraordinary, that sort of commitment. But the bottom line of this, the scandal of this is, there's no new and additional money put on the table. And this was seen instantly by Pacific Island leaders. This $500 million is drawn from the existing aid budget. So it's simply reprioritising that. And one of the reasons that Australia wants to deal bilaterally with island neighbours is divide and conquer. If we were to put money into the Green Climate Fund, the executive board of the Green Climate Fund is 24 countries. Half of them are developed, OECD countries, half of them so-called developing countries from the developing world. And so the board operates with many mid-powers from the developing world having a say on the priorities, where the money should be spent, how it should be allocated, what proportion should go to women or these developed countries and so on. If Australia is acting bilaterally with a small country like Tuvalu or Kiribati, it can threaten those countries by using the economic clout that it has. And that's one reason, not the only one, why Australia doesn't want to go through these multilateral bodies, but simply to be the boss, to hand out money even from there. And the worst part of it is they're putting it on our neighbouring partners in the Pacific to make the hard choices. They're going to say all of the climate finance that was pledged by Scott Morrison at the Pacific Islands Forum will come out of the existing aid budget. So it's up to you to decide, do you want the health budget to be cut, to put more money into climate? Do you want the education budget? Now, you're a sovereign nation. We wouldn't want to impose upon you. It's your choice and your choice alone as to which existing programs get cut for money to be reallocated to the climate response. And that's the cynicism of this government And that's why Pacific Island governments were so angry at the Pacific Islands Forum this year, at Morrison, and it's why Pacific Island governments are looking to other partners rather than Australia to be the so-called partner of choice in terms of development priorities. Just to go back to the summit for a moment, Australia not having a seat, is that not in one sense counterproductive? Well, look, these summits are a talk fest to a certain extent. I mean, the real action is on the ground. The real action is the struggle in each country to shift policy in all sorts of sectors around agriculture, around energy, around transport. And every country in the world is struggling with this. How do we do this? How do we deal with this existential crisis? So in one sense, not getting a seat at a UN conference, well, that's right. But internationally, it's pretty symbolic and the UN is, is interesting in this way. They, they, these sort of talk fests, normally the big powerful countries get first say. Um, at this meeting, it was very clearly saying the countries that are doing stuff around climate change should be speaking and everyone else can sit and listen. And so you saw a space being given to young delegates. There was a whole day of climate youth discussions at the UN and we've seen the student strike last week for uh, the mobilisation of young people who are the ones in 2030 and 2050 and so on who are going to be dealing with the consequences further down the track of today's inaction by existing governments. And so, you know, the latest superstar uh, of young people is Greta Thunberg um, who made a swinging attack on um, the governments around the world 
from China to the United States to Australia and others saying, you're not doing enough. Don't pat us on the head saying, oh, wonderful to see you kids speaking up. Get off your ass and do something. Very forcefully. Yeah, well, I think you just listen to the politicians in Australia who say, oh, these kids should be in school and, you know, they're all emotional and they've been brainwashed and so on. Go and talk to them. They can do the maths. Someone who's 15 today or 19 today is going to be 50 in 2050. They're going to be the people in government, in business, in the trade unions, in the community who are dealing with the consequences of inaction by the current thing. So, I mean, it's, it's not saying that the youth are perfect, but it's saying they can do the maths like anyone else. And they can also hear the debate that's going on around the world. And one of the things that's happening with this global student strike is that voices are coming from across the world. There were rallies in Solomon Islands and Vanuatu and Fiji and Indonesia of young people saying this is a global challenge. It's called global warming for a reason. And that aspect of climate justice has been taken up very clearly by the student movement, by the youth movement. The people who marched at the front of the rally in Melbourne, 100,000 people marching, old people up the back. The march was led by Indigenous, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representatives and Pacific Climate Warriors. There was a recognition from the organisers of the youth that Indigenous people bear the brunt, the first brunt, of these policies, partly because they need extra resources to make the transition and partly because the climate injustice is built into this process um, that on a global scale and a national scale and a local scale that indigenous peoples are affected. And you see in Brazil, indigenous peoples in the Amazon bearing the brunt of Jair Bolsonaro's fascist sort of policies of opening up to the cattle industry and burning down large swathes of the Amazon. You see it in Indonesia, where indigenous peoples are facing the brunt of the forestry policies that see great swathes of timber burn every year in, uh, in Indonesia. Um, these are, you know, indigenous peoples are at the forefront of the struggles in many cases, and that was recognised by the young people in the way that our government refuses to recognise. Just staying with the Pacific, the tussle between Taiwan and China? Well, that's been going on for quite a while. You know, for many years, um, Pacific countries and Caribbean island countries were amongst the strongest supporters of Taiwan on the international stage. You know, a decade ago, Taiwan had about 30 countries, 30 out of 190 in support. That number's halved over the last decade. And that's because every country in the world, every nation in the world, is grappling with how do you engage with China. There are many contradictions in the rise of China since the capitalist roaders took over in Beijing in the late 1970s. We've talked about on the program before. There are many contradictions with China's economic rise about energy and environment, about the national question. You only have to look at the debates about human rights for Uyghurs, about what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment. But China is a significant and growing economic power, and everyone in the world is grappling with that. So our Pacific neighbours are just as we are. And the suggestion that China's influencing and taking over Pacific Island countries is some grand strategy, well, Pacific countries say, hang on, 
Australia, New Zealand, the United States, all have a one-China policy. They all recognise the People's Republic of China, not Taiwan. And so Taiwan has been hanging on to some Central American countries, Caribbean, Pacific countries. So until recently, six Pacific countries, six of the smallest Pacific countries, supported Taiwan uh, rather than China. Um, Taiwan's given a lot of funding, not huge amounts, but significant amounts. They've run agriculture programs in these Pacific countries. They've uh, been diplomatically supportive of Pacific initiatives. Um, They've talked about the historic heritage where people actually left from Taiwan to come through Austronesia um, into into the the Pacific uh, in pre-historic times. So there's been a connection with Taiwan. Some of it, too, is driven by anti-communism. Um, you know, going back to the 80s and 90s, um, at the time of the, the Soviet Union, uh, many Pacific countries saw Taiwan as a, an anti-communist democratic force against uh, rising global communism, and that's still a sentiment amongst many Pacific Islanders. But everyone recognises you've got to deal with China. And so we've seen in the last week two countries, Solomon Islands and Kiribati, both announced that they are going to switch diplomatic relations from Taipei to Beijing, uh, not recognising the so-called Republic of China, Taiwan, but recognising the People's Republic of China as their diplomatic partner. And on the ground, what does it mean? Well, not that much in one sense. You know, as I said, Taiwan has given some funding to the Pacific. Taiwan has run agricultural programs. Taiwan gives some scholarships every year for people to go and study in Taiwan. But Beijing is offering basically pretty much to replace those programs. Economically, even in countries that are aligned with Taiwan, China is a major player as a trading partner, as an investor in resource programs, and in a diplomatic sense. And so, for example, in, in the Solomon Islands, China is one of the biggest economic partners of the Solomon Islands. Not always in a good way. Chinese logging companies, for example, have been following the tradition of Japan and others, going back to the days of Lever Brothers and the British, ripping out the forests in Solomon. So Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea are the main exporters of round logs, hardwood logs, to China. And so, you know, Chinese corporations have been at the forefront of economic activity in countries like the Solomons. So while at a diplomatic level, Taiwan was the key partner, economically, it's Chinese companies from the People's Republic that have been most active. It's also migrants from China, so-called new Chinese migrants, not just the old Chinese who've been in Solomons for generations, but new Chinese who've come in to set up trade stores. And you'll find Chinese trade stores spread across the whole country in rural areas. Now, Australian businesses don't operate trade stores and small businesses and so on in the outer islands of the Solomons, but Chinese entrepreneurs do. So you've seen, and that's part of the reality, that why Solomons has shifted from Taiwan to China. And how many other countries are likely to do the same? Well, Kiribati following immediately after Mm -hmm. surprised many commentators. Um, I think uh, the, the few that remain in the Pacific, Palau, Nauru, Tuvalu, Marshall Islands, are probably going to stay with Taiwan for the moment. Um, I could be wrong, but uh, um, Nauru, for example, has been one of the, uh, Taiwan's strongest backers, um, although we've seen the loss of uh, 
President Wonga lost his job by, and lost his seat in Parliament in the most recent elections in Nauru, so that's a significant change. Uh, he's one of the strongest backers, personally, of Taiwan. Palau, for historic reasons, has had strong links with Taiwan and uh, is a bit wary of China for economic reasons, the Marshalls because of the American connection. So we're probably not going to see too many more in the next month, but, hey, I didn't expect personally that Kiribati would take the leap so quickly. You know, as I say, Taiwan has lost half of the countries that supported it over the last decade simply because everyone in the world is working out how do we engage with China, Chinese companies, the Chinese government. And this is where Pacific countries are so angry at Australia, being lectured about this. Australia is grappling with the same question. How do we engage with China as our biggest trading partner at a time that there are still significant human rights violations in China and where Chinese workers are struggling with the impact of capitalist development just as workers around the world are in every country? Can I just finish, Nick, by going back to West Papua? And the reaction or the non-reaction by the Australian government? Australia is joined by Papua New Guinea and Fiji within the Pacific Islands Forum to support Indonesian sovereignty over what they call the two provinces of Papua and West Papua. But what we're seeing at the moment is a new generation of young people who've grown up under Indonesian rule since the Act of Free Choice in 1969 saying that they don't want to be part of Indonesia, that they want the right to self-determination. This happened in Timor uh, in the past, where a generation of young people had grown up under Indonesian rule. There was an older generation, people like Shanana Gushmao and Joseph Ramos Horta and others, who'd grown up under the Portuguese, and memories not of supporting Portuguese colonialism, but, but you know seeing themselves as part of that tradition. But a young generation of Timorese when they had the opportunity to vote for independence, came out in droves, even though they spoke Bahasa, even though they'd grown up and been educated under the Indonesian rule. The same thing is happening in West Papua. A generation of West Papuan exiles came out in the 1960s and kept the torch alive of the dream of independence, the dream of Medeka, of freedom. Now a younger generation have taken up that struggle within West Papua and the United Liberation Movement of West Papua has united people within the country and people outside. And so you're seeing this on the streets, but also in the halls of power, in the Human Rights Commission, at the Pacific Islands Forum, the Melanesian Spearhead Group, that this issue of the right to self-determination won't going away. And Australia's pretty isolated on this. Many other Pacific neighbours um, are taking up this question. And Indonesia is very concerned about the push for human rights monitoring Vanuatu, which will host next year's Pacific Islands Forum uh, on the 40th anniversary of their independence, has called for a report to come from the UN Human Rights Commissioner, who's supposed to be going on a visit, but Indonesia refuses to set the date. Uh, Michelle Bachelet, the former president of Chile, is supposed to go on behalf of the United Nations to look at human rights in West Papua. Uh, Vanuatu wants a report of that mission on the table, um, before the forum next year. Um, let's see what happens with that. And it's many, many thanks once again to journalist, researcher and author Nick McClellan. We learn so much from Nick every month he comes in. It's great. <laughs> ¶¶
Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. On the line now from Sydney is Dr. Tim Anderson, author and activist. Tim, the White Helmets were favourites to win the 2016 Nobel Peace Prize, nominated again last year. There's a push for this year. We're told that they have saved more than 100,000 lives in the war in Syria. Where do they come from? Who are they? Well, it's very clear now. Maybe it wasn't at first. The White Helmets was something set up by a British former soldier and former mercenary with money from the British government, and it was set up as a a type of paramilitary TR operation in the Al-Qaeda-held groups of Syria, mainly mainly northern Syria, but also the East Ghouta. So that was about 2013. The bulk of the money was coming from the British government. Later on, the US government under the Obama administration added some money. So there was around $100 million initial investment from the British and the US government. But they tried to claim it was a Syrian civil defence or relief organisation. In fact, there, there is a Syrian civil defence organisation. They just ignored the fact that that existed. This group only ever existed to support operations by the Western-armed and Western-financed anti-government armed groups in Syria. It never existed in areas that were liberated from those gangs. And are these people Syrian, the ones you see on the streets? Most of the White Helmets are Syrian, but uh, they are also... There's some very big photo archives been posted online over the last few years showing that they are exactly the same people who were in the armed groups, in particular Jabhat al-Nusra and its allied groups. So in other words, they were the same armed groups and they were participating in armed acts, the execution of prisoners, for example, the, the slaughter of soldiers, the disposal of bodies and so on. They were the same people who were in those armed groups but simply changing their costume for, for a different purpose. And there seems to be no questioning of this group, does there? I mean, when they give a figure of 100,000 people that they've saved from rubble or whatever, no one questions it. No, those figures are pretty much plucked out of the air as, uh, of course, by now also with this very long war, you've got a number of agencies, um, media groups, or they call them media activists these days, and so-called human rights groups, the, the Syrian Observatory on Human Rights. Uh, there's another one, a network on human rights. They're funded. They're all funded by Western governments and associated agencies such as the National Endowment for Democracy in the US. So they're directly funded by participants in the conflict to produce, you know, humanitarian pretexts for the ongoing war, basically. And that humanitarian pretext of, of over and over and over of rescuing a baby or a young child, I've yet to see them rescue anyone else. Yeah, well, I mean, also people have been in and interviewed people coming out of um, areas that have been held by those armed groups. For example, in Aleppo, you might remember the end of 2016, um, around 100,000 people came out of East Aleppo as that area was 
liberated and as the, the groups that refused to or the people that refused to accept amnesties and hand over their weapons were bussed across to Idlib, remember when that was going on, they spoke to the people and they said, what did these White Homes actually do? And they said, well, they simply helped the armed groups, basically. They didn't get treatment. They didn't give treatment to ordinary people. They were a show, basically, a PR show to make the armed groups look good. And then you see a photo of a child and you realise, well, I think I saw that photo a year ago. Yeah, they did recycle the photos in my um, in my article on humanitarian war, and it's a chapter of my recent book, Axis of Resistance. I give a number of examples of that. They kept recycling photos. They even filled the United Nations. One of the UN agencies posted one of their photos um, of... Um, uh, transposed, you know, they admit they said that his photo of damage by Assad's barrel bombs or something or other was actually from Gaza or some other place entirely. There was a number of them that were recycled over the years too. I'll get back to your book in a moment, but you've just been to Syria. Why? I went to a trade union conference in Damascus earlier this month. There was over 200 delegates there, mainly from the Arab and world in Africa, North and West Africa but also several dozen people from Western countries. So to support Syrian workers um, and to oppose the the unilateral Western sanctions on Syria. You know there's no UN sanctions on Syria, but there have been unilateral coercive sanctions by the US and its allies. Well, how are the workers in Syria getting on? There's a number of reports showing that there's increased hardship from these sanctions because people are surviving because Syria has a long culture of self-sufficiency, but in terms of its energy, in terms of its food, there are still several countries occupying important parts of Syria, of course. Uh, Israel in the south has occupied the Jolan, the, the um, very lush part of southern Syria. Turkey is occupying part of northwest Syria and also northern along the northern um, parts of Syria. And the U.S. is occupying the southern part and um, along the Iraqi border with Syria too and in the, U- in the case of the US it's uh, blocking relations with normal relations with Iraq and Iran and it's also sitting on some of the oil fields of Syria. At the same time the US sanctions have been blocking fuel supply to Syria. Remember that the British stopped that uh, ship from Iran delivering fuel um, through the Straits of Gibraltar to, to Syria and the Mediterranean there. So there's a, a concerted attempt to starve and cripple Syrian people generally, and there has been in the last year or so reports by independent people pointing out there's some really serious impacts of these sanctions on health, on food, on energy, on a, on a wide range of things. You, you recall back in the 90s when there were sanctions on Iraq, and it emerged at the end of that period that many hundreds of thousands of children were being were being were dying as a result of those sanctions and it, it came out and eventually after almost 10 years there was a campaign to lift those those sanctions on Iraq but after the damage had been done well the same thing is happening again with Syria and the western media the western governments are very strongly defending their sanctions but uh, UN experts like um, the most recent one Idris Chazari is is pointing out that there's very, very serious um, impacts on basically deepening deepening poverty and putting large numbers of people, millions of people at risk in Syria as a result of this. Really, it's an economic blockade. Sanctions is too soft a term. It's an economic blockade and it's affecting the entire population. Well, when you talk about an economic blockade like this and you talk about 
foreign countries occupy certain parts of the country. How does the sovereign nation operate, the sovereign nation of Syria? No, well, that's precisely the, the war, including the economic war, has been to deny the existence of a sovereign state. That's what's going on. That's why it's so inhumane and basically illegal. Of course, Syria isn't the only country subject to it, but it's, it's subject to some of the most extreme sanctions. They're more extreme, for example, than the economic blockade on Cuba, which has had those sorts of measures for many, many years. When I say blockade, it means it's not just that the country, the US, for example, is refusing to trade with the country. They're actively trying to block uh, any basic supplies getting to that country and also the channels of finance that are needed to finance, for example, spare parts for medical machinery, medicines, food and so on. They say there's exemptions from these uh, from these basic necessities, so the Europeans and the US say that. But the UN experts, uh, like Mr. Gisari, have pointed out that there are such a lot of obstacles, like the financing of transport and so on like that, the chilling effect on any private companies and so on, that, that those sanctions indeed do affect the, the whole range of um, of goods. Now the same thing's happening to Venezuela, of course. Um, not exactly the same, but a similar process. Basically, they've, um, the US has managed to cut drastically the income of, of the country, and of course that has an impact on the population. There's a very large number of countries subject to these sorts of sanctions, but with varying degrees of severity. There are a number of countries that are supporting Syria, thinking of Iran and Russia. How do they get their support through? It's a good question because the problem has been that the US has had a type of stranglehold on financing trade and commercial relations. You've heard of the SWIFT system, which is based in Belgium, but effectively controlled by the US and was one of the mechanisms for maintaining the US dollar as the international currency. So all countries have been subject to that sort of US control. Well, now Iran and Russia are setting up their own called a finance messaging system. In other words, there, you know, physical money isn't transferred. There are simply messages about changes to accounts. So Russia and Iran have pioneered one there. It's expected that um, China, which has been trading in other countries' currencies for a good decade now, is going to join in that. Um, Iran, at the same time, has a special credit line with Syria, and we actually asked the Syrian president about this at the conference. The conference delegates went to visit the Syrian president, and that was one of the issues raised. There isn't as yet, from the Syrian point of view, any multilateral or comprehensive financing system set up, but there are several bilateral arrangements, so one with Iran, one with Russia, one with Venezuela, for example. But it looks like in the very near future there is going to be a multilateral financing system which bypasses uh, U.S. control. Does that include weapons? It's about financing to start with. Um, in, in terms of weapons, of course, weapons defense cooperation is the first thing that was really being developed. You know, there's a, you, you may have heard that there's an anti-terrorist operation headquarters in Baghdad, in Iraq, um, which involves Russia and Iraq and Syria and Iran, even though the U.S. is still has significant influence in Iraq. This is one of the, do you say, the contradictions of what's going on there at the moment. The U.S. claims to be uh, defending Iraq and the region from terrorist groups while it finances them. So 
of course from the the side of the groups resisting the the aggression in the Middle East or the the multiple wars which I say it's really a single war in the Middle East uh, you've got a, a very strong emerging security alliance between particularly the countries of the region Iran Iraq Syria the resistance in Lebanon and Russia and to a lesser extent China talk about your book for a bit access of so, resistance so my book um, it's called the new one out just this month is called acts of resistance towards the Middle East towards an independent Middle East and the theme of it is basically it comes three years after my book, The Dirty War on Syria, it continues that book and it talks about the, the more recent years of the war on Syria, but it also puts it in context of the entire region. And one of the propositions of the book is that there is a single war, a war for the Middle East in, in the Middle East involving at least eight conflicts. The US is driving them all. And the resistance to those wars is forming an alliance which is necessary for the defeat of those wars because little countries like Syria or Iraq, for example, can't defend themselves from this type of aggression. There has to be a strong coalition, and that coalition is emerging, You know, particularly the military coalition between Iran, Iraq, and Syria. That's precisely what Israel and Washington had tried to, had feared and tried to prevent happening by dividing those countries by trying to balkanize them by occupying the, the frontiers as the US does with Iraq and Syria for example preventing a very strong alliance emerging at the borders of Israel which is effectively a state without any an apartheid state without any borders constantly trying to eat up territory and um, threaten its neighbors Israel fears that, the US fears that. They talk also about a, the, the fear of a, an Iranian land bridge, that is to say that there would be a, a transport and communications corridor between Tehran and Beirut, Tehran through, uh, from Iran through Iraq, through Syria to Beirut. Of course, that would be a very good thing for the commercial and economic relations of the region, but it's one of the things that the, the US and its allies in the region, particularly Israel and Saudi Arabia, are trying to this is 3CR Tuesday Home Time. I'm Jane Bartlett and I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson. Just focused on Saudi Arabia, Arabia for a moment, the, the oil fields fire. Who benefited? I think the Yemenis benefited. The Yemenis um, claimed responsibility for it. They carried it out. It was a series of... It, came after a series of similar attacks on, on Saudi facilities throughout this year in particular, and also the, the, the Yemeni forces, the national forces, announcing that they had developed drones and missiles from their own technology. Remember, Yemen is a very resourceful and very uh, a, a large country. It has a large population, but it's been the subject of this horrendous war for the last four years from the U.S., basically through Saudi Arabia, and, of course, all of the weapons sales from Western countries, particularly Britain, France, the U.S., and also Australia, significant sales to Saudis in particular, but also Qatar and the UAE, which have been at different times involved in competing sort of attempts to get control of Yemen. So the Yemenis have fought back very heroically in the circumstances and uh, have imposed some significant deterrent on the, on the Saudis now, which have been relentlessly bombing Yemen. So the Yemenis, it was really a, a turning, despite all the rhetoric about 
the U.S. about Iran and so on, and all the, the rhetoric about, you know, claiming that Iran was behind everything happening in Yemen. It was an important deterrent um, put out there by the Yemenis to make the Saudis rethink their strategy of, of continuing to try and crush Yemen. But the, the outcome there, of course, is still quite uncertain. But, of course, by blaming Iran, you allow, allows even more sanctions to be inflicted. When you say more sanctions, it's just a way of talking about the war, the, the extension of an economic war. And they, all these things are illegal, of course. It's not that the word sanctions makes them look like there's some sort of normality, but in, in effect they're coercive measures trying to damage the people or destroy the political system of another country, which is clearly outlawed. It's clearly illegal in international law terms. And basically the, the danger is, of course, that there's been this brinksmanship in terms of a real... A real physical war with Iran, which has been... Um, it seems that both sides don't want it because they know it's going to be enormous in, in its terms and the Iran and its allies have said it's not going to be limited to... They won't be able to limit it to some sort of um, just a, a defensive war of uh, by Iran. It's going to include all of the, the bases that the US uses in the region and the allies that have been pushing for this war, in particular any war that any aggression that the U.S. carries out against Iran is going to lead to the incorporation of the the territories of U.S. Um, allies such as Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Israel in, in that war. An Australian role? The Australian role, the Australians, uh, Australian government, Australian entities and corporations have been involved in every one of these eight wars, all of them. And yet, the, according to the Australian media, there's not really any sign of it. I mean, I, you might recall, Jan, we spoke about one incident I investigated in Syria where 120-plus Syrian soldiers were killed by the Australian Air Force with the US Air Force, pretending that they were... pretending it was a mistake and that they're mistaking them for ISIS members. In fact, they killed the soldiers precisely to allow ISIS to take over a mountain in Deir Zur. Now, as soon as the US and the Australian government said this was a mistake, the Australian media went quiet. They said nothing in, in, the, in the subsequent three years since that attack. It was September three years ago. There's been nothing about that. And, of course, the sale of arms to the UAE, to the Saudis, arms are used to arm their groups, their proxy armed groups in the region to support the war on Yemen. Those things are extremely poorly reported too. Occasionally there's some report which doesn't refer to the role of, well, even the role of the US is generally speaking denied, on the war on Yemen is generally speaking denied in the, in the US media. They'll blame it on the Saudis, but they won't mention that really this is being done at the best of and with the, with the weapons of the US. The blockade in the Strait of Hormuz were sending warships, planes, sailors. Not a good there's idea. No, there's no blockade there. There's no blockade. What they'd like to be a blockade? Well, the, the, the US is claiming that Iran poses some threat to free shipping there. In fact, it's the US that poses the threat. Iran has pointed out that Iran and Oman, which are the two states on either side of the Straits of Hormuz have guaranteed the safety of shipping there for decades. And the presence of warships bringing more bombs and planes and so on into the Straits of Hormuz in the context of 
a economic blockade against Iran. Remember, the Trump administration is talking about maximum pressure for some months now. They don't want a, a drop of oil to be exported from Iran, and yet they talk about the free movement of uh, essentially needed oil in the Straits of Hormuz. It's an entirely partisan attempt to seize control of trade uh, in that part of the in that part of the world. So that's that's become a flashpoint, but uh, as yet there's no blockade. There's an attempt really by the US to blockade Iran in the name of, and then police the Straits in the name of, uh, which really the Straits go into Iranian territory, of course, because the territorial waters of both Oman and, and Iran uh, are in those Straits. Over to Latin America. What's happening with the oil shipments from Venezuela? Well, once again, as with Iran, the US is attempting a, an economic blockade of Venezuela. Uh, they have indeed succeeded in reducing the exports massively of Venezuela, even more so than Iran, and that's created a, a further economic crisis in Venezuela. There, uh, once again, the US is trying to starve the people of the country to try and create foment and foment some sort of dissent and um, some sort of political or economic collapse in the country, which is really relying on the fact that people are going to be desperate and starving. A terrible act of war, again carried out by the Trump administration, but in a long line of this tradition coming from the US. The US has about um, 25 countries targeted for these sorts of uh, economic war measures, basically, which they call sanctions. And But because the third parties are involved in this, that is to say, countries and corporations are sanctioned for, for example, doing business with Iran or um, Cuba or Venezuela, for example, um, it really involves most countries in the world. This was greatly escalated, by the way, under the Obama administration, we should remember, the, the fines that U.S. Treasury imposes on individuals and corporations for breaching their U.S. unilateral sanctions were usually, under the Bush administration, for example, were fairly small. They were to do with catching U.S. citizens importing Cuban cigars into the U.S. and fining them $1,000, those sorts of things. Under the Obama administration, the Obama administration started imposing massive fines on mainly European banks for doing business with a number of countries under their sanctions, but mainly Iran and Cuba. So, for example, quite a number of European banks were fined hundreds of millions of dollars under US law. The, the total amount uh, was more than four or five billion dollars over the, the Obama administration lifetime. And they were fines, in inverted commas, really imposed as a condition for those companies wanting to continue to do business in the U.S. Uh, that's what they're saying with Iran now. That's what they're saying with Syria now and Venezuela. And in the case of Venezuela, um, I think the Maduro government said that they were getting $50 billion a year in oil revenue um, a few years ago, four years ago, and now it was down to something like 4 or $5 billion. So it literally decimated the... The export income of Venezuela, the U.S. has seized the the property of Venezuela in in um, the U.S. In the U.S., there's a company called Citgo, which uh, through which the Venezuelans sell 
petroleum and oil to to the U.S. They've also sold heating oil at discount to poor communities in the U.S. Well, the Trump administration has simply seized, confiscated all that. There are many, many tens of billions of dollars of Venezuelan assets simply seized by the U.S. and its allies around the world. Now there's a real economic war going on against Venezuela, just as there is one going on against Iran and Syria. Is there any way that Venezuela can be self-sufficient? Yes, but um, the problem is that particularly in the case of Venezuela, you know, there have been attempts to, as they say, sow the oil, that is to say, invest oil revenue in other industries, but it still remains a very petroleum-dependent economy. So it's vulnerable in that sense. Um, of course, the the, the, the obvious um, way out of this really has been um, the more independent large countries of the world, like China, for example, which buys oil from Iran and from Venezuela, for example, and and India. So that alternative, alternative markets, alternative economic routes, if you like, are what's the pace of that restructuring towards an economy which builds strategic partnerships like that is, has been hastened by the Trump administration's very crude and, and brutal economic measures, basically. But, um, you know, up until fairly recently, the Venezuela was selling a lot of oil to the U.S. In other words, the, the business part of the relationship carried on despite the political conflict. Now that the Trump administration is making economic war a, a feature of its, of its policy, um, the economic restructuring in the world has really been accelerated. Are there signs that the opposition in Venezuela are fracturing? Oh, yes, that happened quite a long time ago. There was a lot of dissatisfaction with the self-proclaimed presidency of um, that man. What's his name? Do you remember what his name was? <laughs> I'm trying to forget. I'm just joking. You know, yes. Juan Guaido, they call exactly. him Guaido Dog. There was a lot of dissatisfaction with that because he wasn't able to really make any substantial moves to indicate that he had any sort of power in, in the country. In fact, the attack on Venezuela really by the U.S. was so blatant that it rallied a lot of support back to the Maduro government, which was in the middle of serious economic crisis, mainly because for some years the Venezuelan government hadn't really been able to control the currency or, or prices in the country. So without foreign exchange control and with uh, with hyperinflation, there was a lot of difficulty in stabilising livelihoods there, and that's why you had a, a fair deal of economic migration to other countries. But although the social programs are still very strong, so... Contrary to the U.S. media, it wasn't the case of people starving in the streets. There were strong social programs still. But now the pressure on Venezuelan exports dries up a lot of the revenue that the, the government was using. They were using more than half their budget. I think around 60% of the Venezuelan budget in recent years has been on social programs to make sure that people had all the basic necessities of life in terms of food, medicine and so on. And also um, housing, a huge housing program which had uh, delivered free or affordable housing to two and a half million Venezuelans. So those sort of things are put in doubt by the, the the intensity or the ferocity of this economic blockade against Venezuela. Finally, Tim, the images we're seeing of Morrison and his entourage in the United States, comments on that? Yeah, I've seen some of those reports. I don't read most of them, but I do notice that he, on the one hand, in the Great Australian tradition, went along to you know, kiss the feet of the US emperor on the one hand, but on the other hand, seemed to try and 
extract himself from the war against Iran in particular, you know, because the the Australian government, whatever you say about them, are not stupid in the sense that they can foresee that a conflict with Iran will be a much larger, more uncertain and possibly extremely wide-scale war. And there's a great fear of getting involved in any war that has no obvious limits. When you're carrying out an aggression against a small country like Libya, for example, then, you know, people feel less uncertain about that because they think that Libya is small and has no no support, you know, but when it comes to Iran, which is a big country of over 80 million people, it has significant technological development, military development. It's a much stronger country than it was 40 years ago when the U.S. pushed, when everyone really followed the U.S. in pushing Iraq to attack Iran. Iran is a much stronger country these days, you know, so I think there's a concern in the Australian government to to not allow this or to not, at least to not single that they want to participate in this sort of war. You might recall just a few years ago when the nuclear deal was signed before uh, Trump unilaterally rejected it, Julie Bishop, who was in the foreign minister, went very quickly to Iran to strike some trade deals with Iran. They were very keen to... And I believe there's still, you know, that sort of concern in Canberra. I've heard it recently, for example, from the the ambassador for Iran here, who said that they were still keen to to maintain what was possibly a very rapidly rising trade relationship with Iran. But all that's put in doubt by the the new aggression coming from from Washington. Really, a very desperate aggression of of a US economy in decline and and fearing decline, but becoming very aggressive as as it seems to be cornered. Imagine carrying out trade wars against most of the world, you know, China, Iran, Venezuela, which they had a good, even despite the political conflict with the the late Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, they kept buying Venezuelan oil. Now the administration in Washington seems to want to take on the world, and for what? It's going to, uh, it it seems extremely reckless to me, the the aggressions that are being carried out against so many large countries at the same time. Can you compare this with other empires on the decline? the way that America is acting? It's a little difficult to to do it in that sort of way. You know, you, we hope that it's not going to not going to lead to a much wider scale conflagration because everyone loses in war unless as you say you, you ignore the people who are subject to a war. You, you know, you say the people of a little country like Libya or or Syria don't matter because, you know, it doesn't really affect us but of course, that's just regarding people as subhuman, isn't it? Saying that um, there have been constant wars um, since the, the so-called Second World War, and but there are, as I said, eight wars, and Australia is participating in all of them in the Middle East at the moment. And uh, the, a conflict with Iran would be a much, a much more serious affair, you know. So, because the problem is, uh, as military people know, in, in studying wars from a military point of view, no sane person really starts a war unless they can see what the end is going to be. They want to have definite boundaries to it, you know, but in the Middle East you can't really see that. You do have big powers involved, you do have nuclear weapons involved, you have extreme statements, you know, let's not forget that Israel is at the core of these sorts of things and used as a pretext for a lot of the aggression. And the Israeli leaders, if you look at their statements in the, the recent election which is 
not got any particularly certain outcome there, are really trying to outdo each other in the, the extremity of their statements against the Palestinian people as a as human beings and in their existence as Palestinian people. So there's a lot of extremism in this mix, and that makes for a lot of volatility and a lot of uncertainty were someone to do the wrong thing, basically. Thank you again, Tim. Thanks, Jane. Dr Tim Anderson, author and activist. It's 5.35. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Next on Tuesday Home Time, what has been described as a powerful defence of Julian Assange in, in London earlier this month by journalist and filmmaker John Pilger and internationally acclaimed musician Roger Waters. Thank you. What a fantastic crowd at this distinguished place in London. It's an honour today to be here to introduce Roger Waters. As well as making brilliant music, Roger has been speaking out for the rights of men and women for many years, and I thank him warmly for initiating this extraordinary event to celebrate and defend Julian Assange. Roger regards Julian as a hero, and so do I. And it'll be a pleasure to introduce Julian's brother, Gabriel, who is here from Melbourne. Gabriel went with me recently to visit Julian in Belmarsh Prison and was deeply moved by the treatment of his brother. Behind us here, of course, is the Home Office, the polite name for Britain's Interior Ministry. The behaviour of the British government towards Julian Assange is a disgrace, a profanity on the very notion of human rights. It's no exaggeration to say that the treatment and persecution of Julian Assange is the way dictatorships treat a political prisoner. There is one reason for this. Julian and WikiLeaks have performed an historic public service by giving millions of people facts on why and how their governments deceive them secretly and often illegally, why they invade countries, why they spy on us. Julian is singled out for special treatment for one reason only. He is a truth-teller. His case is meant to send a warning to every journalist and every publisher, the kind of warning that has no place in a democracy. I spoke to Julian at the weekend. He'd been just allowed to have his first proper exercise. He was allowed to pace up and down in a small bitumen yard. However, at Belmarsh Prison, they have a sense of humour. On the walls facing the so-called exercise yard, a happy clappy words about the blades of grass beneath your feet, but there's no grass. Julian is locked up for more than 21 hours, sometimes longer. It's four months, four months since he was dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy, literally 
in brutal contravention of international law. It's four months and he is still denied the documents and the basic tools to prepare his case against an outrageous demand for his extradition to the United States where he faces incarceration and almost certainly torture. And yet, he is not allowed today to call his American lawyers. He is not allowed access to vital documents. He is not allowed access to a computer. He is confined in a single cell in the hospital wing where he is isolated most of the time from other people. All this because he infringed bail, a bail order, the merest of offences, and he sought political asylum from the threat to his life that awaited him in Trump's America. When I asked Julian what he'd like me to say today, he was adamant. Say it's not just me, it's much wider. It's all of us. It's all journalists and all publishers who do their job who are in danger. In other words, the danger Julian Assange faces can easily spread to the present and past editors of The Guardian, The New York Times, Der Spiegel, El Pays in Spain, the Sydney Morning Herald, and many other newspapers and media outlets around the world that publish the WikiLeaks revelations about the lies and crimes of our governments. Never before in my career as a journalist have I known such an attack on our most basic freedom to publish and to know. The message is loud and clear. Be careful, or you too will end up in an American hellhole. Journalism is not a crime in the United States, not yet, but if Julian is extradited and convicted, it will become a crime. Journalism that does its job and tells people what governments do behind their backs in their name. Julian is not an American. He is an Australian citizen. WikiLeaks, which he founded, is not a US-based publication. But the meaning of his extradition could not be clearer. No matter who you are or where you are, if you expose the crimes of government, you will be hunted down, kidnapped, and sent to the US as a spy. 17 out of the 18 charges that Julian faces in America relate to the routine work of an investigative journalist, which is protected under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The 18th charge about hacking doesn't even relate to him, and even the prosecution over there say that. The whole thing is a sham. The U.S. prosecutors know it's a sham. A federal judge recently declared, effectively, it's a sham. The British government know it's a sham. The Australian government knows it's a sham. That's why Julian is locked up more than 21 hours a day in a maximum security prison and treated worse than a murderer. Why is that? Why is he not protected by international law as the United Nations Working Party has demanded? He is to be made an example, that's why. What happens to Julian Assange and to Chelsea Manning is meant to intimidate us, to frighten us 
into silence. And the moment that we fall silent, it's over. By defending Julian Assange, we defend our most sacred rights. Speak up now, or wake up one morning to the silence of a new kind of tyranny. The choice is ours. Thank you. Just before I introduce Gabriel, I'd like to say that on the 28th of September, at 2 o'clock outside Belmarsh Prison, there'll be a demonstration by Julian's Defence Committee supporters. So now I'd like to introduce Julian's brother, Gabriel. Hello, I'm Gabriel Shipton, Julian's brother. Last month, I went to visit my brother Julian in Belmarsh Prison. It had been a year since I had seen him last. I hugged him and he told me this place he was in was hell. I instantly, instantly understood what he meant. A yellow inmate's armband wound tightly around his arm, exposed how emaciated he had become underneath his baggy prison clothes. In his eyes and voice were the signs that this hell was working its hardest at crushing any hope he had left. This visit we didn't laugh. There was nothing to laugh about. I held back tears as I realised this could be one of the last times I see him. Afterwards, my daughter wanted to know why her uncle was locked up. Has he done something bad, Dad, she asked. I struggled to explain in a way a five-year-old could understand. As Julian's brother, and on behalf of his children, other brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews, mother and father, I call on the UK Home Secretary to block extradition to the USA. Thank you. to introduce the man who started this, this extraordinary demonstration here today, and it is an extraordinary demonstration. It was his idea. When I told Julian that this was going to happen, I think it cheered him more than any news he's had for a very, very long time. He's a huge fan of Roger's. To know that Roger is going to pay this tribute to him personally, gives him the kind of strength that he needs. And I, I hope Roger understands the fantastic thing he's done just in, in giving Julian that support. So without talking anymore, here's Roger Waters. John and I go back a long way. I haven't got any notes. So, so I'm, I'm prepared to stand here and be emotional and mumble if necessary because to see all you people here today is deeply, deeply moving. Julian Assange is locked up for 23 hours a day and uh, when John was talking about it just now I was thinking that 
what I need to help to persuade people is that we as individuals need to be able to put ourselves in the position of somebody who is in solitary confinement. I've been to one or two events like this, except they weren't a lot of people like this is. It was Andy Worthington and his dog listening to me uh, when I was demonstrating for the release of Shaka Alma from Guantanamo a few years ago. Thank goodness he was eventually released and is now back with his family. How do we put ourselves in the position of a Julian Assange in solitary confinement or with that kid in Syria or Palestine or Rohingya being blown to bits by these people in this building here? Uh, how do we put ourselves in the position of the parents of that child who will spend the rest of his life on crutches or however. It's called empathy and it is the most valuable thing that any human being can possess in their lives. And the reason that it's so valuable to all of you here, me, John, everybody involved in any of these movements is because it brings us joy. It is what brings joy to our lives, to be able to empathize, not just with Julian Assange or the dead kid in Palestine, but with all our brothers and sisters all over the world when we acknowledge that we are brothers and sisters and that we all have a responsibility one to another. All right. One of the reasons that it's so um, moving to see you all here is because it means that nobody standing in Marsham Street today, with the possible exception of Special Branch, I know you're there. None of you are asleep. You are awake. You understand your predicament and the predicament of the other 65 million people who live in Great Britain. Well... No, it was never great. <laughs> it was a lot better than it is now. When I was last here, my old lady was out and uh, shopping, and she bought a toy for our dog to destroy. It's called a pet hate. I know this because the la there's a lady in uh, somewhere somewhere in this great metropolis who makes it's a little toy, and this one was Boris Johnson. We have him now. I mean, what's left of him? I'm happy to say the Chihuahua has almost entirely destroyed Bojo, as we call him. And we're happy to see that. So when I was making one of my little videos in support of the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela, I made a, a reference to Donald Trump. Well, the Bojo pet hate looks a bit like Trump. It's got that weird, funny hair and everything that they share. The lady said, I'm just making a Trump, would you like one? And I said, yes, please. She sent it as an email to me. So we now have two. She's one woman working on her own, and these are her only two pet hates so far. Let's turn it into one of the greatest corporations in the world. Pet hates. The first two are Bojo and Trump. Anyway, I digress. Uh, what else do I have to say? John Pilger and I go back to 1985 
when I worked with him and with a, a lovely man called uh, David Munro, who was a filmmaker, they had made a documentary film in 1985 or before called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, or just The Four Horsemen. And it was about, it was based on the idea, and I to this day remember a line from the film because I used it in a show I did called Radio Chaos, and the show was We Are Fueling Wars. And we are. And this is what Julian understood. I.e., because we want to make money, I know you all know this. I'm really talking to some of the people who sleep at home. Oi! Wake up! You all know this, but we make weapons in order to make money. Not for us, but for them. And in order for the, to sell the weapons, we need to encourage people to kill one another and to be fighting. Well, as we all know now, in the desperate predicament that this tiny, fragile planet uh, is in, we are going to have to learn uh, to act uh, collectively. I know this is boring, but it's fucking true. We're going to have to learn to act collectively to express our love for one another, and in consequence, hopefully, the planet will survive for another 100 or 200 or 300 or 1,000 or 10,000 years and our children and grandchildren can experience some measure of the joy that is to be found in the love of one another. And that's all I have to say. sing a song in a minute but before we do since we're here and it's not pissing with rain uh, and uh, where are we going to go next I don't know I've got very little to do I'm going to tell you a story because I love it Uh, all right here it goes no more preamble I had a friend who was a junior minister in the Thatcher government one of his jobs was to go and meet dignitaries at Heathrow airport and one day This is his story, by the way. You'd know him if I mentioned his name, but I won't, because President Gorbachev was going to pass through London refueling his plane. This young chap had to go with a bunch of other young guys from the Foreign Office and the Civil Service to bow and scrape in their morning suits. Anyway, Gorbachev lands and all these Russian troops and blah, blah, blah. And he's only there for 20 minutes, and they're in a little room. He's there with with an aide, and these chaps are all standing around in their shiny brokes and their pinstripes and their morning coats and whatever. I say, jolly good, this should be jolly interesting. Gorbachev just, just stands there and looks at him like he did. And eventually he leans over to his aide and he goes, And the aide says, President Gorbachev would like to ask you a question. And all the young blokes go, I say, bloody good, jolly good, this should be interesting. So the aide says, President Gorbachev would like to know your opinion on the following question. What do you think would have been different in world history 
if President Khrushchev was assassinated rather than President Kennedy. And they all go, fuck me. This, this is too difficult. So now they're staring at their brokes and shuffling backwards towards the wall. Gorbachev, to his eternal credit, let them stew in it for several minutes. And then he turns to his... And he didn't, never cracked as my well like that. And he says to his aide, And the aide says... President Gorbachev believes it unlikely that Mr. Onassis would have married Mrs. Khrushchev. I fucked it up, but I kind of like that story. And so I may be going to see the great man at the beginning of November because he's getting very old now. And we owe him, President Gorbachev, late of the USSR, an enormous debt of gratitude for understanding some of the things that we're sharing here together in this meeting outside our dilapidated, miscreant home office. And that was Roger Waters speaking at a rally for Julian Assange together with Gabriel, <coughs> Julian Assange's brother and John Pilger. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at... Four o'clock, stay tuned, done by law very soon. Bye for now.